0: Hello everyone, good morning, my name is John Keeler, I'm one of the pastors on staff and half the audience uh, left again, so this is my, this is my normal segue here, Sharon always gives me the prime spot whenever like half the people are leaving the seat, so it makes me feel really confident in what I'm going to say, but if you've ever wondered why we have our children and our youth start off um, the service with us, have you ever thought about why we do that? Or or maybe why we have a, I I see a couple confused looks. Um, Or if you've ever wondered why we have our family Sundays, why we're spending all this time promoting our color run, having a talent show like we did uh, on Friday that I'm still uh, thinking of all the ways I'll use those pictures and videos against Fletcher. Um, But if you've wondered, it's because we value our children dearly here at Grace Community Church and our youth. And we know how important it is for them to feel a part of our church. In the discipleship process, they need to feel like they belong here. That they're not just some other program. That we, you know, shove them off into their rooms, um, you know, and, and, and they're a nuisance to us. They're, they're part of this church family. They're the body of Christ. It reminds me of um, the famous um, evangelist, D.L. Moody. Did you know what he said at the end of his ministry? Long, successful ministry career. He started Moody Bible Institute. Very famous man. He said at the end of his career, if I could live my entire life over again, I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. And that that's amazing, right? And many of you, we thank you for those of you that volunteer and, and, and participate and partner with us in our children and youth ministry. In fact, one of the, the funny quotes about D.L. Moody was that Um, He was finishing up an evangelistic sermon, um, and someone asked him, how many people were saved today? And he said, two and a half. And the guy said, oh, you mean like two adults and two children? And he said, no, 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 two children and one adult. Because he knew the value of of reaching children early and and what a full life lived for God can be. And so we've talked a lot about that space that we're renovating. We've um, kicked off our capital campaign and one of the primary reasons is to develop additional capacity, a place for our children and our youth to feel safe, to feel accepted, to hear the truth of the gospel, to be discipled at an early age, to take on um, you know, the mantle of their faith uh, on their own. And so we need you all to continue to be praying and contributing to that. Um, you know, When you think about it, um, if you've ever heard of the 4 to 14 window... Um, It's actually the ages to which most people uh, become saved and become a disciple and and really, um, you know, own their faith uh, from ages 4 to 14. In fact, um, a a lot of studies show that 96% of believers come to faith before they hit the age of 18. And that's really, I mean, if you think about how powerful that is and what we can really be doing in that space and really ministering um, to our youth, passing on the faith to the next generation we have only 75 envelopes left, and that's when you guys can applaud, because 70% of the dollar amount, 70% was committed um, just last Sunday, in one Sunday. So thank you guys. And many of you have said the check is in the mail, so I appreciate that. We really want it to reach us, so no. Um, so far, uh, we, I'm just so thankful to be part of a generous body of believers like this. You know, when you think about in Matthew 18, Jesus' disciples were once again arguing, right? They were, telling, they were arguing, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? It was one of their, their favorite discussions. And, and Jesus called them over, and he brought a little child to himself, right? And if you remember Matthew 18, 4, what did he end up saying? He said, whoever wants to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be as humble as this child. And, and that's really where our focus is. That's really what we wanna be all about here. We wanna really be shepherding and discipling our children. Um, again, there's, there's just 75 uh, additional envelopes, um, 30% of the dollar value to, to commit to. And we ask and invite you to partner with us. And we'd love to, to join you this year in completing that space. Thank you.
1: Good morning, my name is Ardellis Green. Night to see you all. We tend to forget, don't we? Do you forget stuff? Do you forget stuff you could leave in the microwave? You ever forget your keys? You ever forget your name? So people forget my name. And I say to them, We forget R, just say hey you. So you know we um we tend to we tend to forget what we ought to remember, and we tend to remember what we ought to forget. There was a story about an old guy and his wife, an elderly, elderly couple, and um, it was late one evening, and she said, I think I'd like to have some vanilla ice cream. Would you go out and get me some? He said, sure, I'll take care of that. So getting ready to go, she said, well, in addition to the vanilla ice cream, could you get me some chocolate sauce on it? He said, sure, no problem, i to hear that. She said, but you better write it down. And he said, no, I, I think I've got it. He says, but in addition to the vanilla ice cream, the checklist chocolate sauce, could you get some whipped cream and squirt it on top of the chocolate sauce? He says, but you better write it down. You, you, you might forget. He says, no, no, I, I've got it completely. I've got it under control. So he said, just as he's gone out the door, you know, and on that Sunday, would you put a cherry on top? But you better write it down. I, I will not forget. So about an hour later, he comes back and he hands her a ham sandwich. <laughs> and she says, she opens it up, she says, where's the mustard? We need to have our memories refreshed, right? We need to be refreshed, restored, because what we believe about God will affect our life, how we view others, how we live in this world. This is called our worldview, right? How we're going to live our faith out in this world. We want to live our lives by faith. We want our children to live by faith. And 2,000 years ago, the Roman governor, whose name was Pontius Pilate, he asked this question, what is truth? This generation is still asking the question. Past generations believed that you look to a source outside of yourself for absolute truth. God in his word determines what is moral, what is immoral, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. The lines for many used to be pretty clear, but now the lines are pretty blurred. There is a redefinition of terms like male and female of marriage, right? A study from Arizona State University said that 58% of Americans now no longer believe that truth comes from outside yourself. They're saying that there is no absolute truth. The study says that most in our culture say it's up to the individual to decide what is true, that every opinion is valid. In the study, they said people like us, believers, 46% of us do not believe in absolute truth. We need to be reminded of the truth. We need to be refreshed. We have been influenced by this world, and this world is extremely confused. We are the people who believe what the Bible says. Chapter 1, God created us male and female. Chapter 2, God says marriage is between a man and a woman. We now hear in the culture there is no absolute truth. So we hear phrases like this, so trust your heart. I follow my gut. I let my feelings tell me what's right and what's wrong. I feel for every drop of rain a flower grows. I believe somewhere in the darkest night a candle glows. Stop putting your dog in a stroller and eating tofu. Snap out of it. We are in a daze in this culture. Listen to me. We have to think biblically, think logically. It's time to put our thinking caps on. Many in our culture are deceived and confused. God wants us to think, not just feel. Our feelings have to subject themselves to what is true. I can't base my worldview on what I feel. If I feel sorry for the person who says they are a woman trapped in a man's body, they should be able to transition from their assigned sex to their chosen sex. I've made a grave error. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Another, tra- another translator says, let's argue this out. Isaiah is saying we need to employ our mental capacities to know what is God's will. We can't take our cues from what the culture is telling us. Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Phillips translates this and says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Listen to me. We are living in a time when so much of our culture is out of alignment with what God has said. If you follow the Frederick County Public School System, go on their site, you will know about Rule 433, the so-called open and affirming rule. It gives students the right legally to be called by their preferred name and pronoun. They can use the bathroom, the locker room of their preferred gender. They can play sports commiserate with their chosen gender. Recently. Parents have been showing up at the board meetings asserting parental rights. What do you think? Does the school or the parents have the primary responsibility to shape the values of the child? Many are arguing in our culture the school should indoctrinate children as young as kindergartners, first graders. You can be whatever gender you want to be. Your sexual all sexual orientations are equal. What does God say about the topic? I go to see my friend Amir. I'll see him tomorrow. And every time I go to see Amir, he's a chiropractor, I I get an adjustment. He adjusts me back to alignment. We are in a culture that is so out of alignment, and we need a big adjustment. Our culture's departure from alignment with God's will is moving fast, as you know. It is accelerating. Being woke is the cultural trend, and wokeness is dividing us. Men identifying as women, women identifying as men, men competing in women's sports. I mean, how fair is this to the women? How fair is this to the woman who comes in second to a man who's transitioned to becoming a woman? And it gets worse than that. Children are being indoctrinated in our schools, social media, to mutilate their bodies. Chopping off body parts won't solve the problem. If I have turned against myself, if there is self-hatred, transitioning to another sex is not going to solve the problem. So in our schools... We've been indoctrinating our children, saying you can be whatever you want to be. Maybe we picked up uh, from the army. You can be whatever you want to be. We have drag queens reading to our children in the public libraries. And they have the audacity to say that parents should stay out of it. Parents should not stay out of it. We decide what our children hear and what they believe. The transgender movement is accelerating. So you say, What, Pastor R, is transgender? Definition is someone whose gender is different from the gender assigned at birth, somebody who's transitioning to another gender. So this is what I see happening. A person, which is normal in life, you have this identity crisis, right? So you believe at some point that you're a man in a woman's body. We need to say, No, you're a woman. Girl. No little girl was meant to be a man. No little boy was meant to be a girl. God created you as you are, and you're beautiful as you are. You say, Pastor R., that's your opinion. No, that's God's opinion. God's opinion is all that matters. Genesis 5-2 says, God created them male and female. He blessed them and called them human. Part of our humanity, then, is how God made us male and female. My heart goes out to this generation, to the impressionable youth, because many adults are pushing this, and I find this outrageous. I find this wicked. Kids are being told a lie, and my heart feels for them. You say, what do you think this is, Pastor R? I think this is a search for God. I honestly do. If you saw the movie, The Jesus Revolution, Chuck Smith in the movie is trying to figure out back in the 60s what all this hippie culture was about, you know, free love and drugs. And this guy named Lonnie Smith comes to his house. That's who he's dating, his daughter. And he says to Chuck, he says, it's a search. And Chuck says, a search for what? And Lonnie says, it's a search for God. This generation is searching for God, and they are being given wrong answers. They hear something will fix me, my dysphoria. If I get hormone therapy, if I get surgery, it'll fix me. It's not a search for something. It's not a search for some surgery. It's a search for someone, and his name is Jesus Christ. We don't need to look to this shifting culture we need to believe the absolute truth that the Bible will tell me what is right and what is wrong and what is moral and immoral. Okay, after the introduction, Acts chapter 14. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just feel like you got something off your chest. I just had to get that off my chest. Okay. Acts 14, here we go. We're going to try to cover 20 verses in 12 minutes, so here we go. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into this Jewish synagogue. And there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. Paul and Barnabas come to this city realizing the people of the city are broken, just like we are broken. And they came preaching the gospel. They began by building relationships with people of the city, meeting people in the marketplace, the synagogue, earning the right to be heard, looking for opportunities. And a door swings open at the synagogue. It most likely wasn't the first time they had met these people. They had been in their city for some time, making tents, building relationships. They themselves were Jewish. And so what often happened was, at the synagogue, the leader would say, to a visiting rabbi, would you like to say something to encourage the people? So Paul and Barnabas in this setting went into the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. They explained to them God's amazing grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor bestowed upon believers. God did not abandon humanity. God did not turn his back on us. God in the person of Jesus has come to rescue us from this world. The gospel is always good news. You say, what is the gospel? Well, some would say, I, you know, I listen to gospel music. That's the gospel. Or, you know, when something's really true, well, this is the gospel truth. What is this gospel that Paul and Barnabas were preaching? The good news of the gospel will always be better news than the bad news of this world. But and carried in the gospel is some bad news that we are all sinners, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not even one. We said yes when we should have said no. We tried to fit in, we tried to be accepted, by people. We have all broken God's laws. We've all made up our rules about what is right and what is wrong. We've all crossed the line. So the gospel takes us into the fact that God himself had a dilemma. You see, God is just and God is holy. But God is also very, very merciful. And God is just and God must punish sin. Let's say a person appears before a judge having committed a crime. And the person says, I'm so sorry, judge, I'll give all the money back. That's not good enough because this person broke the law. He must be punished. You see, God is just, and in his justice, he must punish sin, but God is also merciful and doesn't want to punish us. So what did God do to solve the dilemma? God sent his one and only son, Jesus went to a cross to satisfy God's justice. From that cross, Jesus said, it is finished to telestai. That which a servant would say when they finished their work, it is finished. That which an accountant would stamp on a bill when it was paid, it was paid in full. Jesus went to the cross to satisfy God's justice and show God's amazing love. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe. Because we had a debt we couldn't pay. The story is told of a famous general. whose name was Garcia. And Garcia would travel with his troops and entourage, and they lived in tents. And it was discovered that in the food tent, someone was stealing food. A lieutenant came to him and said, Garcia, someone's been stealing food. And so he ordered an investigation to find out who had been taking the food because... There was a shortage. And his lieutenant came back and said, General Garcia, we found the thief. We have some good news and some bad news. The good news, we found the thief. The bad news is the thief is your mother, your elderly mother. Now, Garcia had ordered that when the thief is found, the person will receive 40 lashes. And he was a just man. He knew he had to keep justice but he also was a merciful man. He knew that a whipping would kill his elderly mother. So what did General Garcia do? He took off his shirt and he took her whipping. All 40 lashes came upon his back because he was just and he also was merciful. God was just and merciful at the cross. He bore God's justice and he showed us his mercy. But the unbelieving Jews, verse 2, stirred up the Gentiles, and they spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. You see, in that synagogue, there were Gentiles who wanted to learn the truth about God. The pagan beliefs of their culture offered them no hope. The Gentiles turned to the synagogue for hope. You see, when the gospel is preached without compromise, it always arouses opposition. Some of the Jews there were unpersuadable. They spurned God's message, and they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. They engaged themselves in a smear campaign. They spread lies about them. What I see happening in the current culture is a smear campaign. What I feel is happening is people will label me (coughs) transphobic or homophobic or a hater. These are strong, accusatory words. And the enemy can sling false, accusatory words that aren't even true. You see, if I love you, I'm always looking out for you. If I love you, I'm always seeking your best interest. If I love you, I may say things you may not even like, but they're true. When my son Josh and I would have our disagreements, I would say to him, Josh, you know, I'm always for you. I'm always on your side. I'm always trying to tell you the truth. You see, there were letters and documents in their day that, re- that resembled New Testament documents but weren't accepted as Scripture. These documents were known as the Apocrypha. Have you heard that word, Apocrypha? Apocrypha means unknown or spurious validity. And one of the apocryphal books was called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's the story of how the Apostle Paul came to the city of Iconium, and there he met a young, beautiful woman whose name was Thecla, and they had a torrid romance. Their romance was not looked with favor by her family. It shattered her family, And it turned the city against Paul. Now that book is total fiction. And scholars believe it was written a couple hundred years after Paul came to this city. But it was probably based on false rumors concocted to destroy Paul's reputation and poison the mind of the people against him. And you can always spot the work of the enemy when he goes behind the scenes with whispering rumors and lies behind someone's back. Notice that the apostles did not run away. They stayed there for a very long time, and they made disciples. And God confirmed their message by doing miracles and signs. But the city was divided between the believers and the unbelievers. And eventually they developed a plot against Paul, and he left the city for the town of Lystra. Verse 8. Jesus told a parable about an evangelist, and the gospel, and the response of people to the gospel. The evangelist is pictured as a farmer. It's the spring of the year, and the farmer has plowed his fields, made them ready. And the gospel is pictured as seed, good seed. And the farmer takes his seed with his seed pouch, and he begins to spread seed everywhere. And that gospel falls onto four different kinds of soil. You know the story, right? The first soil was hardened like a rock. The farmer casts his seed and it lands on hardened soil. The birds see this as an opportunity and they come and snatch up the seed. This is the enemy snatching out of the heart of people, the gospel. The second kind of soil is shallow, rocky soil, maybe an inch or two of soil and then bedrock beneath. So these people receive the gospel with joy but fall away when the troubles come. The third kind of soil had thorns and weeds. The farmer casts his seed, and the seed becomes a plant, but it becomes choked out by the weeds. This is the cares of this life, the worries of this world, the riches and pleasures of the world. So the farmer sows his seed, the good seed. Soil one is hardened. Soil two is shallow. Soil three is thorny. But there was seed sown on good soil. And when that little seed went into the soil, it took root, and it grew up, and it produced fruit. And that's what happened in the lives of believers in Iconium. The seed was planted in them and began to bear fruit. Verse number 8. So in Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. Since there was no synagogue in the town of Lystra, town number 2, They went to the town square, the marketplace, and they shared the gospel with anybody who would listen. I remember so very, very well, I was called to go to the home of an elderly 91-year-old woman, and I was there to present the gospel because her life would soon pass. As I worked my way into the gospel, she worked herself into a long nap. I thought, This is what happens sometimes when you preach or share the gospel, that people just really just fall asleep. So um, I was walking out of there feeling discouraged, and her nurse was in the other room. She said, what did you just say about forgiveness? I said, well, there's the power of the cross to forgive your sins. She said, really, God will forgive me of my sins? I said, sure, would you like me to explain it to you? The reason I was there in the room was not for the 91-year-old who passed out. It was for the 64-year-old nurse who was listening in and wanted what I was talking about. You see, as Paul proclaimed the gospel, there was a man sitting in the marketplace who'd been lame since birth. Paul and Barnabas had been there for a while. Perhaps they'd spoken to the man before, but the man seemed to have faith. Paul looks at him with a spirit of discernment, being full of the Spirit, and he said, stand up on your feet. And the man who had never stood up stands up, there's strength in his feet and his ankles. He made the transition from hearing about Jesus to believing in Jesus. He stood up, his ankles were strengthened, and he walked for the first time. And the message of this miracle cracked the city wide open. The whole city took notice of this miracle. They preached the gospel with power without compromise. They conf- God confirmed the gospel with a miracle. They prayed over this man, he was healed. But even as God was at work, the enemy was at work behind the scenes. Satan called the caused the superstitious people of Lystra to misinterpret the meaning of the miracle so they missed the truth. The people speaking in their own dialect said, "Paul and Barnabas Paul and Barnabas are gods who've come down to us." from the heavens. Paul, they called Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and Barnabas, they called Zeus, the chief of all gods. I mean, it's flattering to be called a god, isn't it? So what's the backstory? What's the legend behind this? In the past, Zeus and Hermes, these Greek gods, had come to the city of Lystra. They came incognito, looking like ordinary guys. They walked the streets of the town talking to people. They looked for someone to invite them in, to show them hospitality. But the gods were rebuked by the people, rebuffed, and pushed away. Only one aged couple, Philemon and Bacchus, invited them into their house for a meal. And because the gods were angry, they caused a great flood, destroying all the houses and all the people, except this elderly people, elderly couple. So their house was was changed into a temple and they were blessed with riches and prosperity. So here's the scene. Two ordinary guys, Paul and Barnabas, come to town. They see a crippled man. They lay hands upon him. They pray over him. They heal him. And the man is miraculously healed. And they come to a conclusion the gods have come back. We messed it up last time. So let's whistle for the priest, bring the fatted calf, Let's get back into favor with the gods. Let's get it right. This is our big second chance. So what happens now, can you imagine this? Here's Paul and Barnabas in the city, and they're bringing out the bull with the garland to sacrifice to these two men. So what's going to be their response? Paul tears his clothes. Why did he do this? Because we are just like you. We're human, right? We aren't gods. We got better news than the gods have come from once upon a time down. We got better news that the gods have come back to town. We aren't gods. We aren't Zeus and Hermes. We are people who believe in God. The good news is that God himself has come down. The true and living God has come down. The true God will tell you the truth. The living God will give you life. You can go from being dead to being alive by putting your faith in this God. The idols aren't real. God created man. And trusting in this God means eternal life. Your gods are fickle. Your gods are arbitrary. But there is a living God. He's saying to them, turn from your false gods and turn to the living God who made everything. God has always left behind a witness. And part of his witness is all that he has made. The living God permits people to exercise their will. He says, in the past, God let all the nations go their way. We can safely say now, can't we safely say, that America is a post-Christian, secularized nation? We used to be the home team, but now it feels like we're more the visiting team. You know, the home team gets cheered for, the visiting team gets booed. And so sometimes we feel like we're the visiting team getting booed. People will say to me, I hear you've heard this too, I believe that all roads lead to God. This may surprise you, but I agree. Whether you believe or not, your road leads to God. To the believer, the road leads to heaven. But to the unbeliever, the road leads to judgment and hell. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many travel that road. But narrow is the road that leads to life. C.S. Lewis said, in the end, people get what they really want. If in this life you really want to live without Christ, in eternity you will live also without Christ. But in this life you live for Christ with Christ. In eternity, you get to be with Christ forever and ever. The living God gives to us all free will. When we choose to follow God's design, someone famous once said, when you choose to follow God's design, you're basically happy. When you choose to your own way, you find yourself miserable. And God shows his goodness and his grace to us, his love. He says, look at verse number 18. In the past, he let all the nations go their way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown his kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Turn away from these false gods, these idols. God has been supplying all your needs, not the gods. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign ruler of all things. He's the one who's been giving you food. He's the one who makes the birds to sing. He's the one who makes the crops to grow. He's the one who makes the sun to shine. He's the one who makes the rain to fall. He's the one who gives you joy and gladness at your table as you laugh with your family. He's talking here about common grace, that God is good, and he showed his grace to all mankind. So what does Paul get for all of this? He gets stoned. The Jews will come, and they will stone him and leave him for dead. But God's going to raise him back, and he's going to go on to preach. So there's a number of principles in this. Let's try to put our hands on what this story is teaching us. The strategy is to take the gospel to every town, beginning in Jewish synagogues, building bridges to people. They quote these Old Testament scriptures to the Jews, familiar with them, and show Gentiles how to connect with God through His common grace. They encounter opposition in every city, even the point of their lives being in jeopardy. So before we preach, we need to be prayed up, prepared, and earn the right to be heard. And when we preach the gospel... Let's speak it without reservation, without compromise. And let's expect opposition to come in many, many forms. And after we preach the gospel, let's make some disciples. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the courage and the boldness to go into these cities that you gave to Paul and Barnabas to speak the truth to a generation that was very, very, very broken, putting their hopes in things that could never satisfy their hope, living in darkness and confusion and deception. We've got to feel, Lord, living in this culture, there's so much deception and confusion and lies being told. Lord, help us to discern the truth from the lie, the truth from the errors, that which is moral from which is immoral. God, help us to know the truth, and to live out the truth. Help us to pass on the truth to this generation. Would you raise up, Lord, a generation that is strong in their faith, who really does know you, Lord, and knows the truth of your word. So, God, would you fortify your people and strengthen us, Lord. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, for we know it's the power of God unto salvation for every person who will believe, both Jew and Gentile. God, use us in the midst of this culture to be a beacon of light, to bring truth to people that are searching, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So God always leaves behind a remnant of people that are standing firm in the faith, in the face of a changing culture, rapidly, in my opinion, deteriorating culture people that are just standing with God, standing for the truth and helping their children to stand firm in the truth. You need to play both offense and defense. You know, the Redskins have new ownership now, so we're hoping that the defense and offense improves. The offensive part of this is you need to prepare your kids for this world because there's going to be a lot of challenges to their faith. And the defense is when they come home and begin to process what they've just been through. Let's talk about it. What did you hear? Let's talk about whether that's true or not. Where, did, where does that come from? In other words, parents need to be helping their kids navigate this world they are living in, because if they are not, they will be swallowed up in this world. That's exactly the we build this space, right? Build a space where kids can hang out and have these conversations and process their lives, learn the truth, see examples of that. So if you haven't got an envelope yet, you want to grab one. There's more envelopes. We'll, we'll keep producing those envelopes. So, um, you know, John, Mr. Shakedown was telling me, like, make sure you tell them. Don't forget, there's envelopes over there. So if you haven't gotten one yet, you want to get one, grab an envelope, and uh, we're going to see this thing get done. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for these people. Thank you, Lord, for people that stand for the truth, who know the truth. We know the truth will set us free. So, God, give us the boldness, the courage in the midst of all these societal pressures and school pressures, work pressures, to be still and quiet and know that you are God, that we are yours, that you defend our hearts, that you walk with us every step of the way. Give us opportunities, Lord, to have these conversations. We really, really want to help people process through this time. Lord, please use us, we ask in Jesus' name.